So on this date, 21 years ago, I was standing in my driveway loading a trailer when I heard that the first plane hit the first building in New York. And Cheryl and I ran inside and started watching the TV because I had a team of people that were reporting to me that worked in that building. I had just come home uh, from about six months worth of work there from about March or so uh, on the 71st floor of tower number two. And the only reason I was at home is I had put in a week's worth of vacation. Um, and so it really kind of made me pause and wonder, you know, how strange that I'm not there. So as I spoke to some people, Mark Massey and some others this morning, we were talking about how church buildings today have things on their sign that say things like never forget, which I think is important. We shouldn't forget, but we have to ask ourselves why we don't forget. We don't remember to hold a grudge or to, uh, you know, be more divisive in society. Instead, I wonder if we should remember that all of us right now in this room and connected to us online in 2001, God knew we'd be in this room right now on September 11th, 2022. And that's just unfathomable to me, that he knew that, that he has a plan for all of us. And so you might say, well, well what about the people who passed away? Well, that, I don't know. Um, either they'd already done what God had asked them to do, maybe they weren't his children, maybe they didn't know him, I, d I don't know. We can't, we can't spiritualize it and make it all okay. There's death all around us in this broken world, but here's what we do know. Most people in this room and most people connected to us online have had some sort of emergency. They've had some sort of loss. There's been some 9-11 for them that they've come through, and when they look back at some point, whether it's 21 years later or even later than that, they see where God's hand was involved in what they might have just thought was coincidence. So before we listen to this lesson this morning, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all that you know and all that we don't. You have searched us, Lord, and you know us. You know our coming and our going, when we lie down and when we get up. You knew each of us would be gathered here in this room and online before the trials we have journeyed through ever happened. Whether they were terrorist attacks, cancer, job loss, death of a spouse or family member, imprisonment, or something else that we failed to mention, you knew about them and you knew that we would be here today. It is unfathomable to us. We do not understand your ways. We're in awe of you. May you speak to us this morning through Scripture, and may we hear what you intend for us to hear. In the name of Christ, amen. So, this morning, we're going to try to accomplish a couple things. Um, I want you to consider Jesus' baptism, and what you know about it, and if you by chance are listening or in here and you don't know about it, that's okay, we're going to cover a few verses about it, but... For all of us who do know about it, just kind of bring that up in your mind right now and be thinking about the scene of Jesus' baptism because we're going to contrast and compare it to something in the Old Testament. And this is going to be a building block for Les's sermon next week. He's going to take us into the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, and we're going to work our way right up to that but not, not go into his lesson or his text. And I want to make sure that we're clear of one thing. We're not trying to, we're not trying to do anything except add to what we already know. Okay, 
Um, you guys that have journeyed with me in classes and things, you know that uh, oftentimes these deeper dives, deeper studies will illuminate something that we did not know that just makes, as Mark Champa has said, us magnify Jesus even more. Um, and I'm hoping that that's what this morning's lesson does. I thank Les for giving me the opportunity to, uh, to take us through this. So here's a friend of mine, uh, another writer and colleague, who makes a challenging statement. He says, uh, God does not smile with more affection on someone who knows little about a subject, especially when that subject is the Bible. Willful resistance to thinking hard and long about the book we say is inspired is anything but a gift of the Spirit. Now that kind of sounds a little, little negative. Uh, if he was here, I would say maybe you, could, maybe you could make that a little bit happier. But I think he's right. Um, I think any time we decide that we really don't have to do any more than what we've always known and we kind of just you know, paddle along in the shallow end of the pool or we just keep checking the boxes, we're not taking advantage of seeing something that we maybe could see and it could change how we read Scripture, change how we understand Jesus. So if we look at the context of such a situation, we are the product of the intellectual climate and resources that we absorb. That's true right now. We live in 2022, we live in the 21st century, and there's a climate, and there's information, and there's things we absorb. And we apply those to Scripture whether we intend to or not. But the biblical writers did the same thing. So a lot of what we find in Scripture and in the Bible cannot be understood well, or even maybe at all, if we don't have eyes to see what was written through the ancient writers. We must be able to think like the ancient writers, and that is a challenge. Some people don't like even thinking about that. They think that the, the reason we know what we know now is because of science and technology and whatnot, and why would we even try to go back and think like somebody at a previous point in time? But closer to the text, closer to the worldview of that time will bring us information that maybe we can't see, especially being Gentiles, which we'll see here in a minute. Our time, therefore, we live in a time where it is more possible than ever to join the biblical writer's worldview. We've had so many discoveries from archaeology and uh, manuscripts and all kinds of different things that, that the Lord has blessed us with in finding that not only support Scripture but give us coloring for things outside of Scripture that then make things in Scripture much clearer, much easier to understand because we see them from other civilizations and other writings and other things that were going on at the same time. So the book that Les has been working from, Live No Lies, by John Mark Comer, he says this. He says, what if we're blind to a whole dimension of reality? And then later he says, what if we are actually oblivious to, or worse, willfully ignorant of the facts? Well, I don't think there's anybody in here that the second quote probably applies to. I don't think any of us are willingly ignorant of the facts, but I do wonder about the first one. I wonder if we're blind to a whole dimension of something that's in Scripture because it's just so foreign to us and we don't, we don't connect the dots. We don't, uh, we don't do the studies to actually understand the worldview at the time of when it was written. And then Chad Bird says in his book, uh, the good news of Christ is so good, it, it's so rich and multifaceted that it cannot be exhausted by a single expression or a single gift. Well, that sounds a lot more positive, right? That sounds like a good reason to do an in-depth study. And what, what I ask is, what are these people seeing that we may or not be seeing or understanding? And so here we go. We're going to connect some dots to some stuff that's right there in Scripture that maybe we hadn't seen before because we didn't have the knowledge of seeing it. So we start with this one concept called topology, all right? 
Uh, basically, I thought this was a great definition, a literary hermeneutical device in which a person, an event, or an institution in the Old Testament is understood to correspond with a person, an event, or an institu institution in the New Testament. And maybe the easiest example is John 3.14, where Jesus says that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That one's pretty easy, right? There's in one simple statement something that happened in the Old Testament. We can go back and read the story, and we can say, why is he making that analogy or that reference or that connection to what he's saying about himself? And it's right there in a neat little verse. Here's where things become a little bit more problematic for us. Gentiles didn't celebrate all the feasts, didn't know about all the traditions, right, in the Old Testament. A lot of times you'll hear people in our time say things like, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, as if uh, you don't ever read the Old Testament. I mean, you should be a biblical Christian, and the New Testament is definitely the good news, but we've got to understand the Old Testament to see some things in the New Testament that without an Old Testament understanding, we'd, we'd just read right through it and not ever even see what, what's happening. And I think with Jesus' baptism, we're going to do that this morning. At least that's my prayer. So Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is something that's probably on your calendar if you use iCalendar with Apple or somebody else and you see all the national holidays, and there it'll show up. I believe it's uh, Wednesday, like October the... something, single digit. October the 6th, something like that. Um, but we really don't do much with that. And I don't know that I've ever had an in-depth study of, of the Day of Atonement before, but we know what it means, right? One time a year, the high priest would go in, make this, make this uh, ceremony and this situation that rolled all the sins forward for the Israelites. But let's go back to Leviticus 16. There's going to be a lot of Scripture this morning because that's the best way to do this, is just go through the Scripture and just show where this stuff is located and then couple of connecting comments between verses. So I'm going to be reading from my phone so you don't have to look at the back of my head, but I'm traveling along with you on the screen. Leviticus 16, really the whole chapter, but I didn't have time to put the whole chapter in. Uh, didn't think you'd want to listen to that much reading this morning. But just uh, the pertinent parts, verses 3 and 4. In this way, Aaron, who's the high priest, is to enter into the sanctuary with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He must put on a holy linen tunic Linen leggings are to cover his body, and he is to wrap himself with a linen sash and wrap his head with a linen turban. They are his holy garments, so he must bathe his body in water and put them on. Five and six. He must also take two male goats from the congregation of the Israelites for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron is to present the sin offering bull, which is for himself, and is to make atonement on behalf of himself and his household, because obviously Aaron is not a perfect human being. 7 and 8 in the 16th chapter. Next, he must take two goats and stand them before the Lord at the entrance of the meeting tent, or tent of meeting, depending on your translation. And Aaron is to cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. Now your translation, NIV included, may say scapegoat right there. And that, we're going to come back to that. We're going to unpack that. But in the original language, in Hebrew, it is actually that, that name um, of, of some being, Azazel. Continuing on 9 through 10, Aaron must then present the goat, which has been designated by Lot for the Lord, and he must make it a sin offering. But the goat, which has been designated by Lot for Azazel, is to be stood alive before the Lord to make atonement on it by sending it away into the desert or 
another word for desert from the same Hebrew word as wilderness, to Azazel, or the devil, which we're going to connect to here in a minute from the New Testament. So who is this Azazel character? Well, not totally sure. I'm not telling you that that is the proper name of the devil. I'm not saying that when Les went through the, the Satan and the devil and all the different names we have for the evil ringleader in the Bible that this would be his name. I'm not suggesting that, but whoever this is is definitely in cahoots with that person. This is the, this is the being that when the goat that's kept alive and has the sins put on it of the people, this is where that goat goes to. This is who that goat goes to. Okay? So just keep, keep that in mind. Now, we go to the New Testament with stuff we're more familiar with. And I think this is where this lesson gets really exciting. In John 1.29, John the Baptist says that uh, it says there, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Interesting, interesting little change there from what we just read in, in Leviticus. First of all, the Hebrew word for a small farm animal like a sheep or a goat, is actually the exact same word. So we don't have to get all wrapped up around the idea of, well, wait a minute, we were talking about goats in the Old Testament, now we're talking about sheep because it says lamb. Actually, John probably uses lamb like we just sang in one of the songs. By the way, thanks, Blake, for picking those out. The lamb is actually more connected with the Passover meal and with what is being done for us through the lamb, which is another lesson which you've probably heard. But Nonetheless, we can kind of equate all of those words together. We can say lamb, goat, and sheep are somewhat interchangeable in this concept that we're working through this morning. So here's why I think this is exciting and important. Have you ever been asked by anybody, why did Jesus need to be baptized? And you probably said something like, well, for an example for us, which is true, nothing wrong with that answer. Like I said, we're, putting, we're snapping stuff onto things we know. We're not trying to replace something or think that we've done something in error. This is, this is exciting stuff to expand our knowledge of Scripture and the story. But we usually don't have any other answer than that. Well, as an example, for us. Okay, but we also know innately that he had no sin. So baptism becomes this thing of like, well, I guess he just did it to show us what to do and there was really no other reason to do it. Then the second question that sometimes people will ask is, and why by John the Baptist? How did that happen? Because they're cousins, or is there some other reason? So let's walk forward with those questions and see what we can glean from the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Look at Matthew 3, 13 through 14 from the NIV. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So John recognizes, even when Jesus comes down to the water, there's no reason, Jesus has no sins to confess. There's not any reason to, to, to baptize him. If anything, John should be baptized by Jesus. And, and that makes us kind of scratch our head a little bit and say, okay, so what, what does John know? What is he thinking? What, what's going on there? Well, if we look at John's baptism, which this is another thing we sometimes kind of rush through, what was John's baptism about? John's baptism was a call for repentance. The scripture tells us that straight out. And by that baptism of repentance, by which the people from all Judea and all areas along the Jordan gathered to confess their sins, Matthew 3, 5, it parallels Israel's nationwide convocation for self-negation on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, 29, and 31. All right, so what does that mean? 
That means that people were coming down to the Jordan to be baptized, and they were bringing all of their sins and confessing them to John. And John is from the lineage of Aaron. So just like what was done in the Old Testament, they're doing it in New Testament times. But Jesus had not yet been baptized, and so this is basically the same type of thing they would have done for, for generations. So John is collecting people's uh, confessions and baptizing them for that, which does not mean that they're baptized once and for all or that it, it, do, it gives them the Holy Spirit or does anything differently than what it's always done in the Old Testament. Look further at Matthew 3, 15 through 17. Jesus replied, and this is usually our answer, let it be so now so that uh, it fulfills all righteousness, which I have a professor right now who says that well, a great way to take the word righteousness is to hyphenate it and make it right wiseness. And I thought, well, yes, because there's something going on that is right wiseness that Jesus is saying, let this occur. It's not for his sins because he doesn't have any, so it's got to be for something else. As soon as Jesus was baptized, and for those who might have been a little fuzzy earlier when I said bring up your memory of Jesus' baptism, here it is. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, which we also sang about this morning, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, there's a lot of stuff going on there. If you go back to someone who heard that, someone who was at the river that day to witness this, they might have heard Isaiah 42.1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. There's the delight, there's the well-pleased uh, clause. I put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So this isn't just for Israel. This is for the world. This is for everybody. After Jesus' baptism, Jesus emerges as God's chosen one who bears all the people's confessed sins at the Jordan River and beyond. Now, we're going to have to connect that here in a second, but think about that. All these people came down doing something they're accustomed to doing, confessing their sins to John. John is in the lineage of Aaron. It's just like they've gone to the high priest. And then Jesus comes... And all of those sins somehow are placed on him. Scripture tells us that he who knew no sin, God made sin for us. So we, we know this. We know these statements, but sometimes we don't know exactly where they come from. Matthew, with the echo of, of Isaiah 41, uh, 42, 1, sorry, strongly suggests that his readers would learn to see Jesus in the role of the servant of Yahweh or the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who would die for the sins of the people. So we've got several things, hopefully, that are starting to come together like puzzle pieces in your mind, right? You're probably already ahead of me, and that's fine. Luke 4 makes it very, very explicit. Jesus goes to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went in the synagogue as was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written from 61, 1, first half of the verse, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And this is probably something like what the anointing might have looked like. So scripture is actually being fulfilled right in front 
of all these people in all these different scenes. And it's all contained in this Day of Atonement process or ceremony or whatever word you want to use from Leviticus, but it's happening in all these different events in the New Testament. And then as we sang in the song this morning, several things get confessed there. If you think about the idea of Son of God, in the Old Testament, Son of God is not just Jesus. Son of God originally, uh, or at least in, in after Adam and Eve, and, and they're, they're out of the garden, and Israel has been uh, called as a nation through Abraham, Israel is referred to as the Son of God. So it's a community, it's a collection of people, right? It's the people who represent Him. Then later in the Old Testament, the Davidic king is known as the Son of God. And this was a normal concept in the ancient Near East where other gods, their king was the son of whatever that deity was. So this, this matches up, again, thinking about archaeology and things we learn from, from what we have now as a knowledge base. This is something that was pretty much known to all the different nations and peoples. But the Davidic king was the one who was the son of Yahweh. But now we have Isaiah outlining the servant of Yahweh specifically and specially, who has the qualities of divinity. And we have Jesus, who's been identified as the Messiah and equated to the suffering servant that we've just gone through. And then from the heavens, he is called the Son of God. So now singular. He is, he is accomplishing everything that previously a community was asked to accomplish. So what I'm suggesting is, Matthew's Day of Atonement topology is much bigger than just one day. It starts with Jesus' baptism, and then multiple things happen that would also happen in the Day of Atonement uh, celebration, feasts, and uh, process. Like, for example, when they, would, when they would come to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, they would fast for 40 days before they came. This is Second Temple period. So that number should also ring a bell in your head, right? 40 days of fasting before something happens about Day of Atonement. 40 days of fasting. Less will carry us into uh, Matthew 4 next week. But Matthew casts Jesus as the goat for Yahweh that is chosen to be slaughtered as a sacrifice and as the goat for Azazel that bears the sins of the world if you read Matthew 3.16 through 4.11. Now, here's, here's what I think is fascinating. We probably wouldn't have seen this. They would have seen this right off. We probably wouldn't because we're not, we're not people of the Day of Atonement Festival. We're not people of that process. We're foreign to these types of uh, traditions. So let's go back to Leviticus and see how this really starts to narrow up. In Leviticus... Uh, sorry, my slide changed. In Levit Leviticus 16, 15 through 16a, Aaron must then slaughter the sin offering goat, which is for the people. He is to bring its blood inside the curtain, which is going to come back here in a minute. And he is to do with its blood just as he did with the blood of the bull. Now, remember, the blood of the bull was for him because he's not perfect. He's the high priest, but he has sin as well. So the blood of the bull is for Aaron. But the, the blood of the sin offering goat is to be brought inside the curtain. He is to sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering goat on the atonement lid and in front of the atonement lid. That's the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. So he is to make atonement for the holy place, which would be the tabernacle or the temple, from the impurities of the Israelites and from their transgressions with regard to all of their sins, which they've just been confessing at the Jordan to John the Baptist. 
Then skipping down a little bit, verses 20 and 21, when Aaron has finished purifying the holy place, the meeting tent, and the altar, he is to present the live goat. Aaron is to lay his two hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the Israelites and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus, he is to put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the desert by the hand of a man standing by. The goat is to bear on itself all their iniquities into an inaccessible land, or I would maybe add somewhere where God is not, the wilderness, the desert. So he is to send the goat away into the desert, or synonym, wilderness. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit. The Spirit's the man standing ready into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil or Azazel. It just just gives you chills, doesn't it? I mean, here here is something actually happening that these people who have been Yahweh followers, God-fearers, have always practiced, and it's being done the ultimate and the last and final time. Leviticus 16, 23 through 24, and we're almost done with Leviticus. Aaron must then enter the meeting tent and take off the linen garments which he had put on when he entered the sanctuary and leave them. Then he must bathe his body in water in the holy place, put on his clothes, and go out and make his burnt offering and the people's burnt offering. So he is to make atonement on behalf of himself and the people. So let's go back to our questions. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Well, it wasn't for the remission of sins. He didn't have any. There's something we're going to tie together here with what John's doing in that, in that baptismal ceremony while Jesus is there. But he did wash his whole body, right? And so he washed his whole body, and then it tells us in Leviticus 16, 32 through 33, the priest who is, a, who is anointed and ordained to act as high priest in place of his father is to make atonement. He is to put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and he is to purify the most holy place. He is to purify the meeting tent and the altar, and he is to make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Before his famed approach towards the divine presence, the high priest was required to bathe his entire body in water. And guess what? Nowhere else in Scripture does the high priest have to bathe his entire body except on the Day of Atonement. So John, wherever you are sitting in here, you'll probably laugh, thinking of Dr. Hicks saying, so what? We would write all these papers, we would do all this research, we'd do all this exegesis, and then our teacher would say something like, okay, who cares? What's the, what's the point? I'm hoping you already know, but here's, here's what Chad Bird's book, The Christ Key, did for me. Jesus is the key for Gentiles to understand the Old Testament to understand the, f- the festivals and the Day of Atonement and all the different things that God was saying, do this as my people, then Jesus, as his chosen one, as the, as the Son of God, comes along and does. And we, we can see so much more, appreciate him so much more, magnify him so much more when we see these things. So kind of wrapping everything together here, it is the final Day of Atonement. At least it's the beginning of the final Day of Atonement. It's obviously not a 24-hour period. Jesus is baptized, the anointing takes place by the dove, he's washed, he becomes the high priest, he becomes the goat that's the sin offering, but that doesn't happen until the cross, right? It's not all happening on the same day. 
but he also becomes the goat that goes to the devil or to Azazel, and that does happen, according to, to Matthew, immediately following. We don't know if it's the same day or the next day or, or whatever, but it is immediately following this, this, uh, this action. So our questions remain. Well, the goat for Yahweh, the sin offering, is what we sung about. That's the blood that we took at communion that's sprinkled for us, that's the cleansing element that washes away, takes away all of our sin, right? And again, Scripture tells us that God made he who had no sin, sin for us. So sins are no longer rolled forward. We don't need the altars anymore. We don't have an altar in here to burn any animals on. We don't have anything we have to, we have to drain the blood out of because Jesus did it. The goat for Azazel is a purging. Actions that belong to the devil are returned to the devil. And John is a descendant of Aaron, so therefore Jesus becomes the high priest in the same line of the high priest. And Hebrews tells us this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the intersanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So is the cross the pivotal point in human history? Absolutely. No doubt. There's not anything that's going to take away from the sacrifice that Jesus makes on the cross. And obviously that didn't happen that day at, at the river, at the Jordan. But all of these things are pointing Israel to their scriptures and to what they know from the story. Not only in the sense that Christ made satisfaction for sin through his blood, but also in the fact that Christ wanted a decisive victory over the evil powers. Look at Hebrews 10.20. By the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is, through his body, Christ opened the way through the curtain into the inner sanctuary. The next lines should make this evident. Jesus did this by means of his body and his sacrifice, which would be the cross, which would be the goat for Yahweh, right? Splitting the curtain in the temple from top to bottom that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover. Just as the curtain was split, so was Christ's body broken for us to give us access into God's presence. So everything that happened in the Day of Atonement, the place was cleansed, the altar was cleansed, the sins were, were forgiven, the other sins were cast to who they belonged to, all of that Jesus does. He cleanses this world and splits the curtain so that we no longer have a holy place, most holy place from an unholy place. We are now able to be with God in this building, in our homes, in our cars, at the beach, in the woods, wherever we are. No more altars, no more sacrifices, no more goats being chosen, because Jesus has been the totality of all of this. And then finally, we have the good news to look forward to. Christ will return and purge what remains that is not of God. There's still some stuff it still belongs to the devil, to Azazel, right? And when Jesus comes back, that stuff's getting purged as well, which includes death, the devil himself, and all those whose name are not found in the book of life. So, so what? Here's what. Hebrews 12, 2. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our day of atonement, our new Adam, our new Moses. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on that once we get the Old Testament story in our minds and we understand it, we can see how Jesus has fulfilled absolutely everything. And that brings us to the invitation this morning. We call it joining the journey. I, I was tempted to go up there, and I know Brian Holloway wouldn't want me to add a word, but I was going to say join the eternal journey. 
There's a lot of people in the world that are on a journey. But there's not everybody in the world that's on an eternal journey. This is the human journey. This is from Mark Comer, and I added the words in brackets. This is the human journey, the exodus from slavery to freedom, with Jesus as our new Moses. Jesus' offer was and still is to rescue and deliver us from the prison of sin, of death, the devil, and our false self, to lead us to a new land, a new and eternal life. If that sounds exciting to you, why don't you come right now and join us?